Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives uh, on issues related to politics, policy, and our world today. Uh, and on today's show, we're actually going to pivot into the realm of American politics, which, uh, as we all know, has sort of reached a new level of tension recently. The Democratic and Republican parties have become more polarized than ever before, and the Congress is currently mired in this sort of eye-opening impeachment inquiry, which we are really excited to talk about today, and, and that could potentially alter the course of American history uh, in many different ways. Uh, joining me in the studio today is Professor Frances Lee. Uh, she's a professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University uh, and one of the country's foremost scholars on congressional politics. Uh, she has written extensively on American politics, including uh, the award-winning book, Sizing Up the Senate, the uh, Unequal Consequences of Equal Representation, and the book Beyond Ideology, Politics, Principles, and Partisanship. And she recently, this uh, past summer, uh, just released her newest book, Can America Govern Itself?, co-edited with uh, Princeton professor Nolan McCarty. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today in the, in the studio, Professor Lee. Thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, with the same last name, Lee, we, we have, I have my friend Sam Lee with me in the studio. He is a uh, sophomore majoring in uh, the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Policy and, and, and International Affairs, uh, working on a policy punchline and helps us lead the research effort on politics and domestic affairs and diplomacy. So uh, Sam and I will co-host the show and ask some uh, very interesting questions, hopefully, about uh, impeachment. So thanks so much for, for being here with me, Sam. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tiger. Yeah, so uh, Pro Professor Lee, why don't we, uh, I guess uh, we always begin with relatively broader questions. Uh, and I think um, since uh, you work on the issues of uh, congressional politics, partisanship, would you mind sort of giving us a, a, an overview of this part? Like, why, why did you choose to study partisanship? What is so important and fascinating about this, this aspect that kind of drew you in? Uh, and what are some of the, your most interesting findings that you would like to share with us? Well, I'm, uh, I'm a Congress scholar, and so I started out studying the, uh, congressional politics and policymaking before I began to focus on partisanship. My early work was on distributive politics, in other words, how Congress decides who gets what across the nation. And I looked at uh, how giving every state two senators, uh, regardless of state population, how that shapes policymaking. But I began to get interested in uh, party politics and in partisanship during the time uh, when I was a congressional fellow working on Capitol Hill in 2002-2003. And one of the first things you notice in the Hill environment is that partisanship, our, our party, affects everything from how the institution is organized to behavior on all kinds of issues, issues that really have no obvious connection to uh, ideology, to questions of left versus right, to what we think of as the principled differences between liberals and conservatives in American politics. Everything is shaped by partisanship in some way. And so I just began to think about that and how is it that partisanship uh, has such broad-ranging effects. And so that brought me to work on what became my 2009 book, Beyond Ideology, which uh, you mentioned. I continued to work on this theme uh, with another book in 2016 called Insecure Majorities, Congress and the Perpetual Campaign, which looks at the effect of closer competition for control of, con of, uh, of Congress, as in majority control of Congress, and how that has helped to drive the rise in partisan conflict that we've seen in recent years. Uh, it was, it was, uh, under conditions of intense and close competition, the party not in power has more incentive to withhold support so as uh, to more clearly define the differences between the parties and thereby make a case for return to power. If the two parties are working together collaboratively, then that harms the ability of the party out of power to say that the party in power is doing a bad job. And so uh, the close competition that we've seen in recent years is one factor that contributes to this intense and uh, you know, ferocious party conflict that has come to characterize legislative politics uh, in Congress. 
so I guess um, going back to this idea that you said about you know everything is shaped by partisanship and how the minority party has an interest to to withhold support from legislation. So I guess uh, the number of laws passed by Congress recently has been decreasing steadily for a number of years. And you just spoke about how the president may contribute to this kind of I guess gridlock by attaching themselves to a policy goal and thereby increasing the the opposition uh, from the the opposing party. So uh, could we just talk a little bit more about this idea? I mean, is this something, I guess, inherent to the American political system that is just something unsolvable or or is this a more recent phenomenon that, that we've seen? Well, with the rise of partisan conflict, this kind of behavior has become more prevalent, that the party not controlling the presidency wants to make a case against the president's continuation in power or his party's continuation in power. And under conditions of closer competition, those those incentives are stronger. So when the president puts forward a policy initiative, that then becomes a benchmark for his performance in office. Is he doing a good job or a bad job? Uh, is he competent? Is he successful? The party out of power wants the answer to those questions to be negative, to say that, no, the president is not doing a good job. He is not successful. He is not a good leader. And so that adds some political incentives to impose the president on initiatives that the president champions that are separate from the policy merits involved. Like you just don't want to give the president a win because that helps him or his party hold on to power. Uh, and so you can see this logic play out. In my 2009 book, I wrote about how when President Clinton proposed uh, assisting local law enforcement in hiring more police officers, that Republicans voted against that to a person, like just strongly partisan reaction to a, basically a grants and aid program to uh, assist local law enforcement in hiring police officers. It's not something we'd previously been associated, we'd previously thought Republicans would be against. You also saw this happen under President George W. Bush when he proposed a new uh, entitlement benefit for seniors in Medicare, a Medicare prescription drug benefit, which eventually passed, but most Democrats opposed it, even though you'd expect Democrats to be in favor of providing prescription drugs for seniors. So that's that kind of logic where uh, the, the uh, party not controlling the presidency wants to find a reason to oppose what the president is proposing. Right. So can you envision any type of maybe solution, um, be it procedural or political, that, that might be able to resolve this specific type of gridlock? I don't think there's any overarching solution to this, um, to these incentives. They're sort of baked in. They are stronger at some times than others. When, when control of the presidency is tightly contested, when both parties see a path into power, that's, that intensifies this, this kind of logic or, or makes it more salient to members. There's less opportunity to do this when the president proposes something that's overwhelmingly popular less opportunity. You, they can still find a way. I mean, hiring police officers was quite popular, as was a, a prescription drug benefit for, for seniors. So, And yet you still saw partisan conflict over that. But it's, it, is, it, it puts a party, the opposing party, back on its heels somewhat if, you are, if the president is proposing something that the public really would like to see happen. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, th I mean, this is just part of our logic of separation of powers and two-party politics. Like, it's just, it's just something that we, uh, that, you know, we have to struggle with, uh, where political incentives make it harder for the, uh, for presidents to lead. I, I guess the, the, then the issue here is, do you think that there are, a lot of those issues are not just deeply ideological or deeply rooted in just the leftist sense or the right. In that sense, it's like uh, an issue of prescription drugs in, in Medicare or a, an issue of increasing local support for law enforcement. So you're saying that those are not you know, inherently a Republican idea or a Democratic idea. It's just... Um, they, they shift stances all the time anyways. That's where you can see the effect of presidential leadership most. It's most evident on issues where the parties don't already have well-defined positions. And then you can see how when the president steps in, it kind of shifts members' behavior. So, um, so 
uh, uh, one example that I, I, I've I pointed to in some of my earlier work is when J- President George W. Bush proposed a mission to Mars, that NASA should prioritize a mission to Mars. Suddenly you began to see Democrats coming out against that as, you know, this is a, this, you know, this is a waste of money. This is not a good proposal that um, we, um, we, you know, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't make this a priority. Previously, Democrats didn't have a position on a mission to Mars. This was not something that they, um, you know, that, that there was a party line stance on, but you began to see one start to develop in response to presidential leadership. But it also, I mean, I would say that Medicare prescription drugs, that's an example of a left versus right issue. But in this case, the Republican president was proposing an expansion of an entitlement benefit. So he was taking the more left-leaning position. You know, the status quo was that Medicare did not cover any outpatient prescription drug benefits. The president was proposing a policy that would uh, lead to the federal government subsidizing those benefits for seniors. And when the president proposed it, Democrats shifted against it, uh, even though you would have expected them to otherwise be in favor of a of a program like that. Whereas for, I guess, deeply ideological sort of issues that are already more ingrained to party histories like abortion, things like that, that is something we probably don't see as much shifting ground. We can't, yes, you couldn't, you couldn't see it. Presidents can't intensify partisanship where it's already <laughs> highly intense. So, right. uh, so if uh, President Trump uh, were to... Uh, you know, propose uh, a, a a policy that would restrict aid to family planning uh, in uh, family planning benefits in uh, foreign assistance. Well, Republicans have a long-standing uh, uh, position against family planning assistance in foreign aid. So you couldn't see there wouldn't be the president is not in a position to have any effect on partisanship there because it's already highly partisan. Right. So do you think maybe part of this issue um, stems directly from the fact that we have a presidential rather than a parliamentarian system in which uh, we directly elect the president who then uh, chooses his cabinet? Um, do you think that this system itself might be a problem going forward for you know what is an increasingly diverse and polarized America? Like, have you maybe entertained the scenario of America possibly having a parliamentary system like Canada, like the UK, or or any other alternative system that might resolve this kind of two party dynamic, or you know that that, that you're currently talking about. Well, in a parliamentary system without separation of powers, the you would expect the president's part or the the prime minister's opposition to oppose the government. The government governs, and the opposition opposes. That is the that is the role of the parties in a parliamentary system. So the uh, the uh, uh, opposition party acting in opposition does not have the capacity to block the party in power in a parliamentary system. In our system, the president's opposition often has the capacity to block. The president's opposition often has the, uh, the ability to do that under conditions of unified government because of the Senate filibuster. So our system requires a high level of bipartisanship to function, but partisan incentives cut against this um, required level of bipartisanship to work. So you're right to ask about whether a parliamentary system might be a solution. The whole idea behind a parliamentary system is that you should empower the party um, that has a majority to truly govern. Our system does not work that way. Uh, I guess one of the the claims, if please correct me if I'm wrong, that I think you've made in the past is that those sort of seemingly divisive social issues and, and poly- are not actually what drives partisanship. Rather, that this phenomenon is actually mostly caused by economic concerns as well as the drive to preserve partisan power. So, um, do you think this still kind of holds true today, when social issues such as a- abortion are you know sort of often cited as a reason for voters um, in a swing state to 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 swing in one direction or not, whether it's voting for President Trump or, you know, because he could um, appoint a pro-life judge, things like that. So um, would love to hear your thoughts on that front. Yeah. Well, uh, 
what you're pointing to is work in my book, Beyond Ideology, that shows that the rise of partisan conflict in Congress does not stem from social issues. Social issues, what I, what I show in the book, have not become a larger share of the votes that uh, of the roll call agenda that uh, members of Congress take votes on. And in fact, social issues have historically exhibited less party unity for both Republicans and Democrats, but especially for Democrats, than economic issues. That economic issues are still the major line of cleavage between Republicans and Democrats in the Congress. Now, what you're pointing to in your question is the extent to which social issues inform or explain partisanship in the electorate. And I think they are much more important for how voters think about why they are a Republican or why they are a Democrat. But if you want to understand party conflict in Congress, it's mostly about economic issues. And social issues are not becoming a larger share of the congressional agenda, and n- nor are those issues as partisan in members' behavior as economic issues. If, if, in other words, if social issues became a larger share of the congressional agenda, party polarization in Congress would decline rather than increase. Oh, really? I, I never thought about it that way. I mean, I, I think especially when it comes to social issues like um, whether like an issue like abortion that has been longstanding, the sort of long debate, or a more recent phenomenon about you know political correctness, all that stuff, mm-hmm. it seems to be highly, highly polarizing topics. Yes, they are. Uh, that, but, but I guess what you're saying is that that's not really what's driving the agenda behind the door, uh, but, but it's just kind of what we saw on Twitter. Right. It's not, what, it's not what explains the rise of partisan conflict in Congress. That, that's not what it's been about. Uh, what about this uh, thing about cohesion? This is because um, I guess uh, the the hundred and fifteenth Congress, which refers to this period from January twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen, which included the final weeks of uh, Obama's presidency and the, those first two years of President Trump's, uh, and, and I think part of your thesis on this past one hundred the one hundred fifteenth Congress is that its modest level of legislative ach- achievement reflects a majority party that is much less internally unified on policy. Uh, than its roll call cohesion would suggest. Um, and, and I guess a lot of a big part of your research also um, talks about the sort of centralization of political parties and, and, and parties growing more co- cohesive. So I would love to, to, to hear you talking about those, those points as well. So um, if you look to the first two years of the Trump presidency, those, was a, those were years where Republicans enjoyed unified party control. So an an interesting question is, you know, given that the parties exhibit such high levels of cohesion in roll call voting, you know, above 95 percent, like 97 percent on issues that divide a majority of Republicans from a majority of Democrats, 97 percent of Republicans vote with a Republican position. So then the question would be, um, why didn't they do more legislatively? Why didn't they make more policy change? They had unified control. They had high level of party cohesion. Well, um, so I took a look at that in some work and in a paper that you read. And veto players, the ability of the Democratic Party to um, filibuster is was a factor. And on a number of issues that um, you know, the ability of Democrats to resist in the Senate blocked Republicans from doing what they wanted to do. So that 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 fits with you know sort of conventional wisdom about how party disagreement can create gridlock, but you also found we also found I had I worked with a co-author on this project with um, Jim Curry. This is part of a, a book that we have coming out next year. Um, what we found is that the Republican Party couldn't get on the same page on some very important issues for the party, most prominently the repeal and replacement of Obamacare, where despite this very impressive level of party cohesion on the top issue, the issue they had been running on since 2010, the party could not get together on a, um, on a plan. They had a lot of different ideas about what they wanted to see, and they devoted nine months of the Congress to that effort, and it all came apart. The first effort to pass it in the House 
failed. They had to pull the bill. Eventually, they got finally got a bill out of the House, despite a lot of Republicans voting against it. It goes over to the Senate. The Senate can't get a vote on the leadership's replacement plan. Eventually, has to scale back to something that was referred to as so-called skinny repeal, which was a very modest proposal that would not have done away with the central tenets of Obamacare. And even that got tanked when John McCain voted against it in a late-night vote. So I think, you know, party cohesion scores can exaggerate the extent to which parties truly agree because there's a tendency for the parties not to take votes on things unless they have already reached internal agreement behind the scenes. What was really unusual about the effort to repeal and replace Obamacare is that they put all their internal divisions on such public display. I think partly because the president was demanding to see action on that. They tried, but they were not in sync. So do you think this um, whole fiasco with the ACA, which, you know, it resulted obviously in a lot of turmoil within the party. Do you think that exposed to this more general phenomenon of parties appearing to be more cohesive than they actually are? Yes. And, and in fact, if we go back and we look at all the recent cases of parties possessing unified control of government, they all failed on one of their top priorities. Mm. The uh, Democrats, when they had unified control under Obama, failed on climate change. If we go back and look at uh, Republican unified government under George W. Bush, they couldn't do Social Security reform, even though that was the top priority after President Bush's reelection in 2004. They just fragmented on that. They never brought it up for a vote on the floor and sh- you know demonstrated in public that they couldn't get it done. They just never reported a bill out of committee. And if we go back before that, there was an effort um, to make the Bush tax cuts permanent, which Republicans couldn't agree on because they were worried about rising deficits. And then you go back to Clinton's unified control after uh, the 1992 elections, and the big failure there was the Clinton health care plan. So, and all of those are cases where the majority party couldn't get together on uh, on a plan, could not come to internal agreement. All of those are cases where they're not blocked by the opposing party. They just didn't agree themselves on what to do. Uh, but, but why is that, though? That's so perplexing. I mean, is it often because they have internal political issues, you know, just partisan politics within? Or... or, or is it just harder to get things done when when everybody feel like they already have the have the control but they actually don't well i'd say what, what there are a couple of key factors one is that when you're really legislating you know when you have unified control and you can actually pass something this is not symbolic this is not just you know taking positions you know that define the differences between the parties in rhetoric this can this will have real impacts and it's very hard to agree on things that will impose costs. So on climate change, you know, that people were going to have to pay increased, uh, uh, increased taxes as a result of putting a price on carbon. This is, this is just it's just hard for members to vote for something that will cause them to be blamed for constituents having to bear higher costs, or look at or, or consider the effort to. Uh, include private accounts in Social Security. The big concern there was that Social Security benefits would would be less. Our repeal and placement replacement of Obamacare, people were going to lose health insurance. So imposing costs is one factor. Members don't want to bear responsibility for that or have their fingerprints on that, that they might be held accountable for that. They can take votes to repeal and replace Obamacare as long as it's not really going to happen. But you can when, shout the slogan, you mean? Yes, you can shout uh, the to slogan to get the votes. But yeah, and and I'd say that's true of all those cases that that you know they would have been because it was real policy making involved, and there would be, would have been costs. It's hard to get re-election minded members to put their fingerprints on something that where they can be blamed for costs being imposed. Well, these results um, they seem to affirm this notion that the U.S. constitutional system is built to encourage gradual bipartisan change. And my question would be, what does this mean for policy goals that might require, say, radical measures to be effective, like climate change, for example? And more broadly, should we interpret these results as a sign of success of our system of checks and balances? Or is it really more a failure on the, um, on the side of legislators to deliver on these promises that they made to their voters? 
Well, the answer is that it's both of those things, that parties really do have a very difficult time delivering on their promises. They make a lot of promises to voters that they cannot carry through on. But the reason for that is because of the system of checks and balances, which does operate to force bipartisanship and compromise and more gradual change, though sometimes very massive change, but it still has to be bipartisan. That I, you know, I don't think that those who want to see national action against climate change will be successful if they try to do it on, par, on, a, on party lines. Democrats had an, a terrible time trying to do climate change uh, in 2009-2010. Even when they had 60 votes in the Senate, they never got anywhere close to getting a Senate majority uh, for it. Just a, so just a majority. They, didn't, they did not have it. Uh, much less the, the uh, you know all Democrats in agreement, the full, all sixty. So, I think it's unrealistic for climate change activists to expect the Democratic Party to be able to carry it, um, because parties have a hard time imposing costs. But um, even setting that aside, the system places a lot of veto power in. Um, uh, in the minority party in Congress. And under those circumstances, it's just very unusual for legislation to pass on party line votes. There is very little legislation, even now in our highly polarized circumstances, very little legislation that passes on a party line vote, including the most important legislation. This is a very uh, grim picture that I'm kind of getting because I used to have this picture that, you know, legislations don't get down, th- done because you don't have a clear majority uh, in the Senate or things like that. You know, when you, it's harder to get through filibuster or to get bipartisan um, support. But now it seems like even if you do have majority and even if you do control both uh, parts of the Congress, you still can't get things done. Yeah. Uh, so, so let us say someone like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren gets elected, uh, and they do control both sides of the houses in, uh, of the of the Congress. It might still be hard to pass some of their idealistic um, legislations that they have in mind because it would be very hard to unite the Democratic Party per se. Unite. So it'd be very very hard to unite the Democratic Party, and that won't be enough, even if you do. Um, there's very little legislation, in fact, that doesn't get majorities of both parties. Wow. And so, and that's currently true. So in spite of the increase in partisan conflict on so many votes, you still don't see the passage of law. So if we look only at the votes that result in the enactment of legislation, those are not more partisan than they used to be. There has been no increase in partisanship on the votes that result in lawmaking because it's so difficult to do it. So you would still need the kind of bar- bipartisan effort if you actually do want to pass laws or, or do yes. policy making. Yes. Uh, so Congress has not become more partisan in that sense. In that sense, which is a critical sense. And wow. so, so just to understand that this is what you're up against when you want to make policy change. And of course, as you reflect on U.S. history, there has been a lot of important change, the role and scope of the national government. But that change occurred in, bi- in, a, in a bipartisan fashion. And going forward, that's how it will still need to occur. But I guess that's kind of different from what we saw, as, for example, when the Obamacare passed. Um, I mean, that, that was, I guess that was still, I guess Obama's signature legislation was, was that and the Dodd-Frank Act. And those kind of just passed yes. uh, without having a majority of the people on the other side of That's the right. aisle, right? Yes. So do they count as passing legislation? They do. That does count. And uh, so uh, Jim Curry and I, in our book that comes out next year, we found 12 cases since the Reagan administration where a party uh, set forth a priority agenda item and passed it on a party line vote over opposition of most members in the minority party and over the opposition of the well, the leaders of the opposing party. So we have 12. Obamacare is one of them. They're not becoming more frequent. So it's, it's really unusual to see this happen. And you think about the, if you think about to the extent that we want to understand what would need to be done 
on climate change. Think about the trench warfare that occurred uh, in the courts uh, and in congressional politics after the passage of Obamacare. That, and, and, of course, Democrats lost control of Congress very shortly after. In fact, the 2010 elections when Democrats lost control of Congress right after the passage of um, the Affordable Care Act. So if you want sustainable policy, this is policy that won't be overturned in the courts, policy that is implementable. With climate change, you're talking about policy that would require a sustained commitment to transform the... Long-term implementation down to very granular level at local levels. That's going to require bipartisanship. Got you. Uh, That that totally makes sense. In a way, does this kind of reaffirm the pessimistic notion of our democracy that really no matter what we do as voters, Congress is still going to pass the same bipartisan legislation maintain the status quo, um, what would you say to that? Well, I would say look back in time that it, it is a hard slog to legislate in Congress, that it's bicameral, so just getting a majority in one chamber, as hard as that is, isn't enough. And then you also have to get agreement between Congress and the president, and then you've got the, uh, you've got the role of the courts, which is, can be consequential for, for, for major policy. So you've got to have a lot of consensus to legislate. And yet, as you look back over the course of U.S. history, there has been a great deal of policy change in the role and scope of the national government, what it does. Uh, and has done some very controversial things, things that you n- never thought would be possible, like civil rights, for example, 100 years after the Civil War, you know, still segregation. And yet, th- it was overcome. I mean, not to say that you know the whole legacy of of, of slavery has been overcome. I don't don't get me wrong on that point, but that great change occurred, end of men, of legal segregation, and uh, the Voting Rights Act. You it, now that was slow, really slow. Maybe we don't have enough time, especially when you think about something like climate change. Maybe we won't be able to get that done on the time frame that it often takes to do major change in Congress, but. I wouldn't lose hope in the sense that major change has happened in U.S. policy history, but it happened in in a bipartisan way. It's very unusual to see important legislation, not to say never, but it's very unusual for major legislation to pass on on party lines, and it's hard to sustain legislation that does pass on party lines, that it won't be overturned when the other party has its next opportunity, which tends to occur pretty frequently in our closely competitive uh, party system. Uh, so you mentioned the Civil Rights Act. You mentioned obviously the sort of the abolition of slavery, and those are major turning points in U.S. history. That I guess uh, you know the status quo seemed so entrenched and didn't seem to, likely to, to change, but it eventually changed. So, uh, did you ever look into them and, and sort of see why and how bipartisanship kind of occurred or, or not d- during those times, and that those changes happened? I mean, uh, could we possibly replicate that kind of situation to a case of climate change where people do get to come together? Well, one of the things that made bipartisanship possible on civil rights in the 1960s was that both parties were internally divided. The South at that time was uh, overwhelmingly Democratic. Almost the whole delegation from the South was were, were Democrats in Congress, and they were at odds with Northern Democrats who wanted to push for civil rights. They wanted to see change in that way. So it was a coalition of Democrats, Northern Democrats, and Republicans. And Republicans were essential to making it happen. That made for the breakthrough. It's uh, it's harder to do it on an issue that is highly partisan. Uh, I were, you know, cl- climate change has become increasingly partisan. If you look at voter opinion, so it's going in the wrong direction, rather than um, the direction that we hope that would be go. necessary for the U.S. system to address the issue. I mean, I, I guess we also see a. Um, I want to ask you about, I guess, the polarization of voters. I don't know which one leads to the the other. I mean, do you think it's that the voters themselves have grown to become, you know, shifting more towards the right and the left, or do you think sort of the party um, themselves? Because I guess a lot of people would say that the tr- the rise of Trump sort of left led the Republican Party to go 
farther right uh, on the political spectrum. And the fact that we are seeing Bernie and Warren's idea become more popular kind of signals sort of the shift, a fundamental shift um, to this kind of activist uh, version of uh, the Democratic Party. So um, do you think this is driven by the voters or driven by the party? And if we see this dynamic continue, uh, does it mean it will be even harder to get things done? So voters, the rise of partisanship or party polarization among voters lagged the rise of partisanship and party polarization in Congress. So we began to see rising partisan conflict among office holders and political elites before you began to see it in the mass electorate. But both have happened. So the voters are more sorted by party in their views than they used to be. So that if I know that someone is a Republican, I can more accurately predict his views across a wider range of issues than I could in the past. Same true, true is, is true for Democrats. Voters are still less sorted by party in their issue stances than elected officials, markedly so. That if I know, uh, if I know, let's just say hypothetically. Tiger, let's say, let's say I, if I know or I learn that you are pro-choice, I, I don't know, but I'm just if I learn that, I would not be as accurate in predicting the rest of your political views on a lot of other issues as I would if, I, if you were a member of Congress and I learned that you were pro-choice. I could predict with a high degree of accuracy your position on lots of other issues. So in other words, elected officials are more sorted by party and are more party polarized by a, a lot, an uh, order of magnitude compared to voters. That, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, so I guess if we have someone like, um, because I think a huge criticism of Bernie and Warren, against Bernie and Warren and AOC, uh, is that those plans aren't, aren't realistic. Like if Bernie were elected president, uh, he would never get the support he would need to pass those legislations. So do, do you see that as a valid criticism? Do you think voters should take that into consideration when they vote? And also, uh, if a moderate like you know Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg get elected, does it mean that they won't get anything done either just because how divided parties have, have become? So uh, I don't know, you know, kind of tying this into the 2020 ca- campaigns. I uh, I am struck when I watch the debates and the uh, among the candidates for the Democratic nomination the extent to which uh, feasibility, <laughs> the possibility of getting proposals through Congress doesn't get very much attention. I uh, I think that it reflects that primary electorates are not all that interested in those questions, are not all that engaged by those questions of feasibility. I think there's widespread belief that if you just push hard enough and you make powerful speeches on a subject that you can sway Congress and you can make things happen, there's a lot of naivete about what it takes to get things done. Got you. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to uh, ask about your personal political sort of beliefs and choices at all, but I was also hoping to, to, to I guess, give me a little bit of clarity when it comes to making those kind of decisions. Is it justified for, for certain people to say I will vote or not vote against certain candidate because I feel like the the legislation that will eventually uh, be proposed to Congress will be slightly more difficult or not because I, I guess based on what you were saying it doesn't seem that you know Joe Biden would have a likely a, a fi- better chance when it comes to passing legislations than, than someone like Bernie right or well it's hard, it's hard to say it depends on their ability to work with Congress so you can start out with some grand ideas but you know if you're not prepared to do the bargaining and negotiation that are necessary if you can't rally your party effectively and also attract support from the opposing party, then you won't be legislatively successful as a president. You have to be able to do those things. So uh, what, you should, um, what you should not expect is that, a, that, the, that the proposals that candidates run on will pass in some kind of uh, direct form that so that the, the the differences between say Bernie's Medicare for all plan and Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for all plan will be a good guide to the legislative outcomes that you would see from Congress that's not 
going to happen. What it comes down to is your assessment then of which would be more effective to start out with a proposal that is more more bold and then to work from there and whether that could be successful in doing the things that are necessary, meaning holding your party together and winning support from the opposing party, or whether a leader with um, maybe less bold plans would be more successful. Neither is guaranteed of success. You could a, a, a presidential a president can put forward plans that are not particularly bold, and still not be able to get any bipartisan support. Like Clinton's plan that we talked about earlier to hire a hundred thousand cops on the street, not a world-changing ch- endeavor, and yet could not get bipartisan support for that. So there's an, there's no guarantees, no matter what path you take. So I wouldn't. Uh, um, you know, I wouldn't say that the work that I've done on the persistence of bipartisanship in lawmaking gives us a guide to what kind of leader we should elect, whether it should be a bold leader or a more moderate leader. It has to be someone who can be effective at doing those things that you know are required, meaning holding your party together and winning bipartisan support. Who do you think can do that, if anyone? I think that's a pessim- that's an optimistic note because you're saying that you know it's that's about choosing specific kind of you you shouldn't vote for that person because he's too bold or or she is too you know progressive whatever Um, but rather it's about the actual candidate's ability to do those things I think that's a I take that as an optimistic uh, note Uh, right and um I think the idea we've really been circling the whole interview is that bipartisanship is necessary for Congress for the legislative branch to be productive Um, so I would ask you if are there any practical solutions that you might suggest that would maybe reduce partisanship, would reduce this growing polarization of our two major parties? If that becomes, I guess, necessary and helpful when it comes to passing legislation. And- I mean, I don't think there are structural reforms that will guarantee those kinds of, of outcomes. I think oftentimes bipartisan breakthroughs happen more um, ha- you know, happen more when the parties can negotiate quietly. I, I think it's very hard uh, for the reasons that I, I uh, we discussed earlier in this interview. When a president goes out and says, "For my agenda, we must do X, Y, and Z," well, that's just asking the president's opposition to say no. We're not going to do X, Y, and Z because I don't want you to be seen as a successful president. That oftentimes it works better if presidents are able to work more quietly on issues behind the scenes with our position so that they can both say, this is what we both want to do. You saw you saw some of this on um, criminal justice reform under President Trump. It was a somewhat modest reform, but it was bipartisan. And that n- negotiation went on behind the scenes instead of bold proposals being traded back and forth um, in public between the president and Congress. So I think that, that is, that's a strategic or, or tactical matter rather than an institutional reform. But I, I do think that those are ways that you can achieve breakthroughs despite the political incentives to, um, to perpetuate partisan conflicts that many members have. Um, that, that totally makes sense. I guess a, a, a very broad questions to wrap this section up is, uh, are you more pessimistic or optimistic about uh, where we're headed as a, as a political system when it comes to polarization, partisanship? Do you see um, solutions sort of coming up eventually? Do you see gradual improvement at all? Or, or uh, do you see hope? Well, it's a hard slog. Uh, that's normal in American politics. It's usually really tough, really bad, really, in, you know, really conflict-riven. You know, you ask a historian to discuss any era in American politics, and it's always characterized by tough politics. Even things, even eras that we think of as more bipartisan today, if you, know, if you talk to someone who really has expertise in that era, they'd say, oh, no, no, <laughs> it was bad. But I think it's always, it's always hard. I mean, our system requires so much consensus that any level of conflict can block change. Uh, And yet, we have seen major change. 
So I would take that as a both uh, optimistic and pessimistic note in the sense that uh, pessimistic in the sense that it's not going to get better anytime soon. Uh, but optimistic in the sense it's not like we've gotten significantly worse uh, compared to previous periods. I mean, the, the partisan conflict is very, very intense right now. That is true. And the ability to get bipartisan support for initiatives, it's more challenging than it was. So, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't deny there's ebb and flow on this and that we are at a, uh, we are at a period of where, you know, leadership is harder. Um, but it's always hard is, I guess, what I would say. And, um, and so it is uh, – it, it's not going to – you know, we're not going to see uh, – broad-scale reductions in partisanship in the absence of some major external event like, you know, an international crisis or or something. Uh, 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 There's been no trend away from intensifying partisanship in recent years. So I can't point to any positive signs on that where I can say, oh, well, it looks like, you know, partisan ranks are fragmenting here and there. Where uh, you know bipartisan breakthroughs seem more likely, I can't point to any anything along those lines, and yet um, bipartisanship is still how things get done when they get done. All the spending agreements, all budget policy, uh, has been bipartisan, including under President Trump. All the agreements that you know have funded the government, all of them. Bipartisan, highly bipartisan, not just not just a few um, passing by a few votes. So. No, so it still happens. There is a problem with media coverage where the news media do play up partisan conflict because it's exciting, and so it leads on the front pages. And so when there are bipartisan breakthroughs, which do happen, and in fact, how things keep running. Uh, it's less interesting, less attention. It's not on the front page of the newspapers. It'll be page A16. Uh, it's not going to you know, be the lead story on cable news. So people get a distorted idea. They think nothing is happening in Congress. Well, things are happening. And legislation, there is legislation happening. And the government's getting funded. It's usually, you know, tough bargaining to get make it happen, and not it's not pleasant. And nobody's happy in the end. They all think, well, you know, this is just the best we could do. But it it does get done, and I I think that that glass is half empty part of the story doesn't get told as much as it should. Not to say that things are good. Don't get me wrong, but just that. There's a there's a filter, and the news media tend to focus on stories of conflict and gridlock more than on stories of uh, bipartisanship, collaboration, and legislative success. Yeah, I just remember when Senator Jeff Flake retired. Right after his retirement, he and his wife came over to Princeton, gave a talk, and it was it was an hour long talk, basically about how uh, Washington D.C. has grown to become more partisan, and you know it used to be that. Uh, all the senators and congressmen's children would go to the same school, uh, and they, they would see each other at weekend barbecues, and 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 uh, you know all that stuff. You would be able to call like you know the uh, the senator on the other side of the aisle's children by name, all that stuff. But but now you don't see it happen anymore. Um, I, I don't know. So I guess he kind of paints a, a pretty grim picture, and I guess he's part of the overall trend of dissatisfaction when it comes to people's uh, th- th- thinking that Congress isn't getting anything done. But I, but I do feel like uh, there are moments of collaboration and, and things still moving through. So I guess based on your assessment, it's not like things are significantly worse. Uh, in- well, what I would say is, you know, you, you pointed to the decline in the number of laws enacted by Congress in recent years, and there has been a decline. But if you look at the number of pages of legislative text enacted by Congress in a Congress over a two-year period, that hasn't come down at all. So there's more legislating in big omnibus form. So there's fewer individual bills, but the bills are much longer that become law. Uh, so things are getting done. Awesome. That, no, that, that, that is a more 
optimistic note than, than we expected. I, well, uh, b- before we end the interview, I want to co- spend some time talking about, I guess, some of the current events things, especially when it comes to the impeachment process um, right now. Um, I, I, I don't know, Sam, do you want to just give us a quick rundown? I don't know, the Mueller investigation, what the, 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 what's going on in the past like two, three weeks about the impeachment? Like, Sure. Well, uh, I think most of our listeners would have uh, obviously seen a lot of news about the impeachment inquiry, which has been going on since the summer. And um, it's really, it's taken a new turn with um, uh, Ambassador Sondland, uh, who, is a, who is the ambassador uh, for the EU. U.S. to the EU, um, who's come forward with this new evidence that Trump did, in fact, request a quid pro quo relationship with Ukraine um, in exchange for investigating bi- the Bidens. And I, I think what we would kind of like to talk about is how our discussion on partisanship and polarization plays into what we see happening on this national stage in Congress. I I guess especially, I guess a lot of people, I mean, policy pundit is nonpartisan, so we're not really trying to to, to criticize Trump or or, or have a stance in that sense, but I guess we're really trying to get a sense of um, how much of the criticism against the right uh, of saying, you know, Trump is corrupt, the, the, the Republican Party is fundamentally flawed and problematic, you know, that's part of the narrative. And another part of the narrative is saying, oh, the Democrats are just as, you know, partisan, as evil and partisan, and they are politically motivated, they have ulterior incentives of dragging the president down, and they're not really getting actual work done when it comes to, you know, the trade agreements, when it comes to um, health care and all, a bunch of other spending bills that, that, that could actually help the country grow. Uh, so I think there are narratives on both sides, and and it's a bit hard for outsiders like Sam and I to tell <laughs> which side of the narrative to listen to because both seats sound pretty convincing, you know. Well, it's certainly true that there were Democrats who wanted to impeach the president from the time he took office. In, Democrats in Congress, Democrats in the electorate who wanted to see that. But there was not a consensus in the Democratic Party in Congress on that question until after the news of um, this Ukraine scandal broke, until after the whistleblower, that that brought on board the mainstream Democrats and the moderate Democrats, the the national security oriented Democrats who wanted to then move forward, who demanded that they move forward. Pelosi could no longer resist that within the party. The evidence was sufficient to persuade Democrats, and and support for impeachment in public opinion polls did surge by about 10 percentage points um, in reaction to this this scandal. But that's where it stopped. It has not continued to surge, that it sort of reached its ceiling. In other words, it convinced Democrats, and it convinced people who lean towards the Democrats, but it hasn't yet shown any capacity to move Republicans. President Trump's approval rating has not changed. And so until you begin to see some ability to bring along Republicans to make them see this scandal the way Democrats do, then I think the rest of this impeachment inquiry is going to play out according to a partisan script where the House will impeach and the Senate will decline to remove and everybody will stick in with their partisan ranks. I I was talking to... uh Princeton professor Stephen Macedo, who's, who's in the politics department, um, just this afternoon, uh, and he was saying that from a, I mean, he uses the word deontological perspective. He said, you know, from from that perspective, I think you know Trump should be impeached, and I think you know he's he's unfit and stuff. But from a consequentialist perspective, I mean, it's it's hard to say whether this is the right way to go about it in that sense. I mean, I I, I think um, just as you said, I mean, if the Senate does knock it down and not go through with the impeachment, I guess Trump might take it as a win and, you know, use this sort of knock home this whole narrative during the 2020 election that, you know, the Democrats are coming after me and they don't really have anything. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of exonerated by the, you know, Mueller investigation and this thing as well. So they're the evil ones. So it might actually, it might actually help his chance of winning. So, um, yeah, exa- exactly. I don't think I don't think it will help his chance of winning because his exoneration will be as a result of the process and as a result of the failure to convince Republicans that he did anything impeachable. But I think we can, at this juncture, project it's likely that most Democrats will see him as impeachable and will vote accordingly in Congress. And so it is not an exoneration that persuaded opponents. And so that will be interpreted differently by the electorate. Now, it's so in other words, it is a, it's a party polarized outcome, which is likely. 
course, you know, there it's a, you can, things, surprising things can happen in politics, but I think that's what's likely. And so that communicates neither an exoneration um, nor guilt. It will be seen by both sides according to opposing narratives, just like you outlined. Um, and so it doesn't increase his capacity to win over soft support or opponents. I, I, one of my friends was t- telling me that uh, so he doesn't agree with the with the claim that the Democrats are solely politically motivated to go after Trump. And he was saying how, you know, if you look at the Clinton impeachment, uh, you know, the Republicans were arguably more politically charged and motivated to not really c- care about the character, but, you know, actually just want to impeach him. So I don't know. Do, do you think the Democrats are also somewhat uh, have somewhat of an ulterior incentive that is not extremely pure when it comes to going after President Trump? Well, the Republicans and Democrats are enmeshed in a power struggle, and control of the presidency is the big prize in American politics. So no, everybody has a motive um, in that sense. There's no getting away from it. And everything that people in, in Congress want to accomplish is affected by who controls the presidency. So it's not just that they want power for power's sake. It's that all, you know, all the things they care about are also shaped by who controls the presidency. So the stakes are very high from their point of view, both for power and for policy. I think idealism plays a role here, as does moral outrage. The problem is that it winds up being connected to your partisan interests so that when Republicans view what happened in the Ukraine matter, they don't feel the sense of outrage about it that Democrats do. If we go back to the Clinton impeachment, Republicans were morally outraged by what had happened. They thought it was terrible and that, you know, it was a degrading to American politics and to, you know, the future of the presidency that this happened and that this was a lied about. And Democrats just weren't that morally outraged about it. So um, in that sense, it's not like fundamentally different when it comes to the dynamic. The dynamic is similar. The emotional responses of politicians are similar. Now, it, it's not hard for us to draw distinctions between the, 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 the issues at stake. We could say, oh, well, you know, that what Clinton was up to with Monica Lewinsky and then lying about it later was a personal matter, not a matter of policy, much less foreign policy. So we could, we could draw distinctions. But the, what I'm struck by when I reflect on the, the, the two impeachments is how similar they are in their dynamics and in the, and not just in behavior, but also in the level of emotion involved. And, uh, and that in that sense, there are the roles are just reversed between the parties. So in a sense, it's likely that, you know, by throughout Trump's presidency, by um, attacking him and by furthering this partisan, polarized environment, the Democrats have actually worsened their case for impeachment today. Would you, would you say that? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that. I think it's not having an effect on it, um, that, um, that it was part, highly partisan before, uh, and it's still partisan. They haven't ha- what they haven't been able to do is break through to any bipartisanship on the question. I, um, I don't think it's that um, they're worse off, and I think that in, uh, when the Senate declines, if the Senate, when the Senate declines to remove the president, if we project as we think that things are likely to unfold, when that happens, there will be a lot of morally outraged Democrats in the electorate who will be upset by it, and this will help to excite them looking towards 2020. So there'll be a backlash there. Um, I, uh, I suppose what, uh, one other thing to keep in mind, though, is that they'll, there's likely to be a long time gap between when this impeachment wraps up and the presidential election. It's likely to wrap up by February 2020, and uh, then you know the election's not until November. 
if we think back to what was going on in January 2019, that we just had the longest ever government shutdown. And does anyone even think about that anymore? Does that have any effect? And would it, if, 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 you know, we held, you know, there were some off year elections in November, like, did anyone even mention it? Did it figure into, I mean, so much happens in national politics. It's, you know, yeah, people forget. They're, people they're, forget. Yeah, there's no, yeah, <laughs> to, totally makes sense. Uh, before we end the show, I also just want to quickly ask you, like, um, how do we actually get better? information and, and better perspectives, more comprehensive perspective when it comes to thinking about politics and comparing events. Because I feel like, you know, so much of the narrative in the media is, you know, either left or right, either criticizing Trump or, or praising Trump. And uh, I, I think it's just very hard to get this kind of critical analysis and more objective uh, comparative analysis when it comes to uh, political news and, and, and stuff like that. So what kind of advice would you give to, to people like young people like Sam and I and also just the broader American public when it comes to b- being able to r- receive better information? Well, I would, I would say don't rely on cable news. Because cable news is so oriented towards, you know, excitement towards, you know, I think of cable news as sort of like sports television, like who's winning, who's losing, and you know, and and so it tries to keep people engaged at that level, and it appeals to people with a partisan rooting interest in one side or the other, and that's who tunes in. So I would read newspapers, and I wouldn't just read the front page. Uh, because in front pages of newspapers have some similarity to the, you know, what leads on cable news. I would look at what's being covered at the back of the A section. Um, so pay attention to that. If you have time, look at what Congress is actually passing. So you know, check in from time to time as to what legislation actually cleared in Congress, whether or not it got news attention. Look at it. What is it? Uh, you know, there's a lot of I mean, there's good transparency now. It's not that hard to find out. Um, you know, there's you know the, the House and the Senate maintain good websites. There are a lot of other websites that allow you to access to government documents. But you know, it's recognizing that there is a media filter that emphasizes conflict, and so to look past that requires a little more work and a little more digging. You should look at primary documents yourself. And you should, um, you know, you should read stories that are not leading stories. Uh, leading stories tend to be just another installment in the partisan drama. But um, you know, to make the back pages of the paper, it's lower profile stuff that actually, you know, happened, <laughs> not just another installment in the drama. But I just think it's so difficult these days because I, I I listen to a lot of podcasts probably because I do it and a lot of the podcasts you know is more less of analysis but more on the rants just going at it uh, saying how yeah, yeah here's the 200 facts I'm going to tell you of how Trump is a horrible human being and the other is like oh here's the 200 facts I'm going to give you of how he's not and and, and this back and forth and obviously the uh, late night comedy shows and stuff kind of uh, also go one direction or the other. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> not, I suppose one podcasts. other thing to recommend, one other thing to recommend here is to listen to, to policy pod- punchline, <laughs> listen to podcasts, listen to policy, policy punchline, listen also to podcasts from folks who you disagree with and read stuff from folks you disagree with, because then you get a sense of what, what, what is it they are talking about? What are the facts that motivate them? It'll give you better insight. It tends to be painful. You know, if you have strong partisan commitments or ideological outlook, you know, to read stuff by people you disagree with is uh, hard duty. But um, I think that that helps you have a broader perspective on American politics. Um, yeah, before before we end the show, uh, Sam and I also just want to ask you, uh, since since the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, what, what's uh, what's the punchline here for this episode? I suppose the simplest punchline is that partisan conflict makes things much harder. It's much that political incentives are aligned in such a way that it's harder to achieve policy breakthroughs. Uh, but bipartisanship remains just as necessary for legislative success today as it did in past eras. So bipartisanship is hard, but it remains essential. Awesome. I, I think this is a way more uh, optimistic 
um, interview than than I previously imagined when it comes to actually I, I guess more objectively thinking about the dynamics when it comes to partisanship, bipartisanship, the, the congressional politics. But I also I I am not more optimistic in the sense that I don't I don't feel more hopeful or happy about where we're headed. But but I think it's a it's a good note to, to end this episode. And, and thanks so much for, for joining us today, Professor Lee. My pleasure. Uh, and, and thanks so much for being here with me, Sam. You, you asked some great questions. I guess this is the first time being co-host. How do, how do you feel about it? It is. It was, thanks so much for, for letting me help out. <laughs> no, this is great. It's been great. And, and hopefully uh, Sam and I will bring in uh, more guests in the future about politics, and especially given how the 2020 election is uh, is, is kicking off. So, uh, and, and this wraps up our interview with uh, with Professor Francis Lee. She is uh, the author. You should go check out her, her, her new book, Can America Govern Itself, co-edited with uh, Nolan McCarty uh, of, of Princeton University and some of her previous works as well. She studies uh, congressional politics, partisanship, and, and is a professor at Princeton University. So we're super lucky to have had her uh, on this show today and, and giving us a more objective overview and comparative analysis on, on some of those issues we talk about today. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, please follow us on Policy com, iTunes, Spotify, uh, rate and review us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.